are you? This is a quality of life issue. Hope in the face of uncertainty. Which side of history will you be on? Hi everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Brace for Impact. This is Catherine and Laith, and today we're going to be talking about environmental justice. Last week we touched on environmental justice in the context of President Joe Biden's climate policy plans, but this week we're going to dive deeper and unpack how it spreads its way through society. Racism permeates our society on many levels. Environmental racism happens via the air we breathe, water we drink, and earth we live on, and environmental justice is a reaction to it. So to expand on this topic, today we welcome the president of our club, Net Impact Northeastern, Julia Carlin. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. You guys have done such an amazing job already with the podcast. I was so, so impressed and just like really proud of the work that you guys have done and so happy that Net Impact has inspired this coming to life. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. thank you for being on with us. So, Julia, you are an environmental studies and journalism combined major, and you've worked on a few projects in relation to environmental justice. Can you give us a brief overview of what environmental justice is? Yeah, so we see oppression manifest in a variety of ways in our country, whether it be through police brutality, voter suppression, or like we're going to be talking about today, environmental injustices. So environmental justice is the intersection between social justice and environmentalism, and it aims to acknowledge the disproportionate burdens of environmental degradation on marginalized communities. We see environmental justice take form in unjust development, implementation, and enforcement of environmental laws, regulations, and policies. Right, and so the impacts of all of this are that communities of color are more likely to breathe in air pollution, for example, even though they contribute less to it. They're more likely to be exposed to contaminated water and exposed to hazardous waste sites, again, even though they contribute less to it. Julia, you use the phrase environmental degradation, and I think Catherine brings up a good point in that that can manifest in air pollution. What are other forms of environmental degradation that kind of happen in these communities? So it can take forms in a variety of different ways, whether that's living in a heavily industrialized area or being disproportionately exposed to toxic chemical plants or waste facilities. It can even be something as simple as not having as many trees in your community and therefore not having the same environmental protections and services that having green space provides. And you know, it's interesting that you bring up green spaces because I think when a lot of people are thinking about the environmental justice movement, for example, especially in relation to what's currently in the news right now, we tend to think of the big oil pipelines and things like that. So bringing up green spaces is a really good point. Yeah, and I mean, oil pipelines obviously are a massive part of this. Those are disproportionately put in communities that can't advocate for themselves politically. So those tend to be communities of color, community, Latinx communities. They tend to be communities of low income. Um, and just it's really all about, or it's oftentimes about exploiting power dynamics and putting industrialization into communities that can't keep it out. And to that point, I actually have a statistic for that. Black people are 75% more likely than other Americans to live near facilities that produce hazardous waste. Yeah, and I think a key part of that is that they are disproportionately exposed even though they're not creating the same amounts of waste. And that's something that we see on a global scale too. Even though in the US we produce the most greenhouse gases and we are some of the leading emitters of CO2, the countries that produce the least amount of greenhouse gases are feeling the burdens most heavily and most immediately. 
And right, what are those burdens, right? A lot of them are chronic health issues that they have to deal with for the rest of their lives. It's not just, oh, I'm living near a hazardous waste site yeah. that's not nice to look at. These are impacting people's health. It's impacting their ability to go to work, and which is a cycle that perpetuates itself, and they can't make as much income for their families, and they're stuck in these low-income communities with um, low-income housing, poor pipes with lead in them, and things like that. Yeah, totally. I think it's super frustrating when people kind of try and boil down the environmental movement into like being a tree hugger or like wanting to, um, I don't know, but just kind of like simplify it into something that kind of extracts from the very severe and immediate human health implications that are happening right now all around the world in Boston, everywhere you look. Um, so I, yeah, there's definitely like so much more to it and it's definitely a human health crisis. Yeah, absolutely. You really you bring up a pretty salient point in that the injustices um, seen in this come from a large population that is emitting these gases and producing these harmful effects to our climate. And then it is these small minority groups, not only in the U.S., but all around the world that are seeing the effects of it. And again, Catherine, your point was also great in that it is these effects that perpetuate what goes on in these communities. And it is that oftentimes Flint, Michigan, for example, um, we saw how, uh, very in a very shady way, the government decided to switch where the water was coming from, and they accessed the Flint River and took the water to the communities there, knowing that this river had um, been polluted by Sorry, large companies, because it was literally the state government in the area that spearheaded this very environmentally unfriendly act. If it wasn't brought up or if there wasn't a whistleblower to this situation, we would have seen people in that community continue to be affected by lead poisoning. And oftentimes, those effects are never chalked up to lead poisoning. So they'd go to the doctors with these side effects and with these harmful impacts of what lead poisoning is. But oftentimes, doctors would attest it to different things or just not know at all. And like it just perpetuates what Catherine was saying, how these communities will stay in these cycles of um, just mistreatment and oppression. Right, and it's not that these communities don't notice what's going on or don't care about environmentalism. It's simply the fact that they're not given the same leverage to participate in our political process as people with more, well, frankly, white people and people with more socioeconomic power. Uh, yeah. Power, yeah. So, Julia, earlier you mentioned how um, environmental injustice makes its way through Boston. Can you elaborate on some examples here? Yes, absolutely. So Boston is, I know we love to talk about how we are such a democratic city <laughs> and we are home of Ed Markey who wrote the Green New Deal, who is amazing, but we are one of the most segregated cities in the country. Right. And the environmental disparities um, are really, really severe. Um, and that is all due to segregation. Like you cannot separate environmental injustice without segregation because it's all about finding a place to put these burdens that nobody else wants to deal with. We see this manifest in so many different ways. One of them is air pollution. A new study just came out from MACP that found that people of color are living disproportionately closer to highways that are obviously emitting toxic chemicals that they're breathing in. Um, and again, like you're saying, it's not just about like living near an ugly highway. It's actually posing serious health consequences, especially now during the COVID-19 pandemic, which is uh, impacting people who have respiratory problems 
that knowledge of that communities of color are disproportionately exposed to these toxins is really important to right because these people already have the highest rates of asthma cases in the nation right. Right. the other um, chronic health conditions that leave people in these communities with less resiliency to a virus that attacks your respiratory system yeah absolutely you bring up a good point in that we can't look at environmental racism and the effects of it as isolated, especially in a time like COVID, we see the effects of environmental racism, which are increased asthma levels or in general, unhealthy living environments be completely compounded on when you put into play a disease that directly attacks your respiratory system, like you said. And again, that leads to higher death rates in these communities. And uh, in addition, just continues the struggles that are the reality for a lot of these communities. Definitely. Um, the impacts of the pandemic have definitely been unequal because of environmental injustices. One example is Cancer Alley, which is an area along the Mississippi River that has clusters of cancer patients in surrounding areas because of the emissions from nearby uh, industrial plants. And Cancer Alley has the highest death rate per capita of COVID-19 in the entire country. This really reflects how health issues as a result of environmental injustices are almost multiplied mm -hmm. because of the pandemic. Yeah, definitely. I mean, like Leith is saying, it, it all compounds on each other and all of these forms of oppression are intersecting. And so we're at a point where you can't point to one thing and say, this is why communities of color are disproportionately dying of COVID-19. Mm -hmm. There's so many different factors that are involved in that. So Julia, how did we end up with such unequal distribution of environmental burdens? Um, I mean, you can really trace it back to the origins of our country. If you look at policies like redlining and segregation that led to divestment in black communities and minority communities, that resulted in housing prices dropping, that resulted in white people fleeing from the city. And I think Roxbury puts a really clear example of how these dynamics play out. So when Roxbury was redlined in the 70s, banks no longer were willing to give loans to people that wanted houses or businesses to put houses or businesses in Roxbury. So that led to people fleeing the area, specifically white people moving out, moving to the suburbs, moving to areas that were more affluent. Yeah, more affluent and perceived to be, you know, better neighborhoods. Um, so then... Yeah, and sorry, those just because you brought this up before, those are the voices that you've talked about too, who have the political stake in making that change, right? Totally, like they have the choice. Like if the bank says, oh, this neighborhood is unsafe or hazardous. I mean, in the 70s, Roxbury received like a D grading on the redlining scale because it was, a, in their words, a dangerous community, it was a hazardous community, but it wasn't. It was just a black community. And so when white people saw that, and specifically white people who had the privilege to say that they didn't want to live in a place like that and actually up and move, they did. And so they moved and they took with them all of the other privileges that come with living in an affluent community, like having a nice park to live in. Yeah, totally. Like having green space or even the most basic things like getting your trash picked up. At a, at a point in our city's history, there was a time when Roxbury was not even being provided the most fundamental services from the city. Like it became basically a dumping ground. What I've heard from you so far is that a lot of what has led to environmental injustices in these communities is a history of segregation and 
almost white flight from these neighborhoods. Totally. But what are some of the ways that we see now, given that the segregation has happened, the white flight has happened, what is unfolding in these communities that brings these environmental implications to them? Yeah, so once you've divested from a community and once a community is segregated away from people who have political leverage or more money to advocate for not having certain things in their community, it becomes easier to put a petrochemical plant in that community that has the low real estate or that has been divested from. I hear and I certainly know that there is large segregation in Boston. I think where I was at a loss to not really completely grasp is and you said it, petrol, petrol stations, and if you can speak of anything else that directly affects these communities. Like in Flint, we saw the um, city directly feed their pipes with mm -hmm. uh, waste-infested water. What, what are we seeing in Boston that continues to like follow this narrative of policymakers deliberately impacting these communities mm -hmm. negatively? I think an example that is really good to look at because it's playing out right now is in East Boston, which is heavily populated by immigrants, a lot of whom are non-English speaking. Um, and it's a community that is already disproportionately burdened by polluting infrastructure and industrialization. It's right near Logan Airport, so there's tanks of jet fuel, and there's air pollution from the airport, and there's trucks and traffic, and there's piles of road salt. So that community is already heavily, heavily burdened by industrialization. So a few years ago, an energy company known as Enbridge proposed to put an electrical substation on the bank of the Chelsea Creek, which is right in East Boston. And electrical substations basically just convert high voltage electricity into low voltage electricity so that it's like consumable to homes. So it's like what turns your lights on. Um, but this substation is proposed to be located in a very densely populated area, in a very flood prone area, and right across the street from a playground. And these substations have been known to catch fire and explode. So obviously the community has been petitioning. It has obvious effects. Right. Not, it's, it's across from a playground and the event it explodes. There are children right there, but right. I'm sure there's other implications to that to that uh, pump being there. Right, and so, if this was the case in other communities that were predominantly right. white and more affluent, this problem would probably no, not it even wouldn't be, be a, here. Yeah, it wouldn't be a question. So no. the community has been petitioning to not to stop this substation from being put into their community. And actually today, they hosted a seven-hour Zoom hearing in which community members could come on and present their grievances. Although the problem is, this is a, as we said, this is a heavily immigrant populated community and a lot of these people in this community are essential workers. Most people don't have time to sit on a seven hour Zoom conference and talk about environmental injustice because they have a lot more pressing issues like their work or their children or a pandemic that is immediately impacting us right now. So obviously the community has been trying to plead with the city and say don't put, please don't put this in our community. This is not safe, this is not healthy for our children. It's just such a risk, it's not worth it. So they're asking the city not to put this there and the city says, okay, well, we'll host a hearing. So they hosted a hearing today that was seven hours long on Zoom. And as we said, this is a community that is heavily populated by immigrants. A lot of essential workers live in this community. And on top of the language barriers and the technological barriers, people have things to do in their day. They don't have time to sit on a seven hour Zoom call and talk about why a substation shouldn't be put near their child's playground. 
Um, they shouldn't even have to in the first right, place, they, and right? Yeah, and they, sh they shouldn't be having to do that because it's really just, I mean, in this case, it sort of just seems like it's kind of about breaking these people down because it, a lot of times it is a losing battle. I mean, this has been going on for almost five years, and these people are still begging. Um, when they first started holding these hearings, they weren't even providing English interpretation so that people actually knew what they were saying because the state said, oh, well, it's too disruptive to have an interpreter. So it's like that's not meaningful involvement. And a key part of environmental justice is meaningful involvement and being able to decide what happens in your community. And in addition to that, not only did they not, once they did provide interpreters, which they, which they eventually did, um, they said, OK, at this meeting, we can, we're going to talk about the substation. We're going to have interpreters. But we're not going to talk about climate change. We're not going to talk about environmental justice. We're not going to talk about language access. We're just going to talk about whether or not this substation is going here. Or Actually, no, not whether or not it's going there. It's going there. We're talking about where it's going to go. And the difference is 100 feet. Um, so it's like these people really just were silenced and shut out and ignored. And that's not meaningful involvement. And that's not environmental justice. And it's. It's really sad to see these dynamics still playing out because it's one thing when you look back and you can see a history of segregation and redlining and just overt racism that has resulted in where we are today. But this is an instance that this project only began like five years ago. Like, how is this still happening and how are people still being completely shut out of the democratic process? And Right, and this isn't an isolated case, and there are so many other cases across the country where they're not even getting hearings, and when there is a hearing, they're not even being listened to. Mm -hmm. It shouldn't take this much to solve an issue of human health. Right, like the Weymouth Compressor Station is a very, very similar situation. Um, on the Fort River Basin, again, it's a very working class community, heavily, heavily populated by immigrants, already exposed to industrialization, and um, they put up a five-year fight against a can Canadian energy giant known as Eversource, who basically jumped over every legal and regulatory hurdle to put a compressor station in the community. And this compressor station would basically pump natural gas from Pennsylvania to Canada. So first of all, the gas is not for the people living in this community, first off. Second of all, it creates a reliance on fossil fuels, which I mean, that's just so against every science. I think we're all on the same page here. Like, we mm -hmm. should not be putting in a new project to ensure the reliance on natural gas. That's insane. Um, but these, these facilities also pump out really potent and toxic um, greenhouse gas, gases like methane and other really volatile organic compounds. Um, so there's, like, a ton of safety problems. And it's a super densely populated area. Again, very flood prone. And it's the same dynamic where the community was saying, please don't put this here. And the state saying, OK, well, let's, we can't really do anything about it after they already granted every environmental permit to this massive corporation. They say, oh, well, we can't do anything about it, but we can facilitate a conversation between you and this billion dollar corporation, and you can present your grievances. And I think it goes without saying that, obviously, the compressor station was put into the community, and it actually got shut down twice. Um, two emergency shutdowns within the first month that it opened. September 11th, it shut down, and then like 20 days later, it shut down again. And then another 10 days went by, and the Federal Commission for Pipeline Hazardous Materials Safety Administration, whatever it's called, um, went in and said, it's good to go. So as of January 23rd, it's, it's back up and running. Um, but there actually is an FBI investigation um, 
to see like what sort of cover-ups have been going on there. But again, it's just another example of people being shut out of the decision-making process. And in this case, they're facing the burdens of an environmental hazard that they're not reaping any benefits from whatsoever, right. and the people reaping those benefits aren't facing any of the burdens. Right. Equal access, too, is a huge thing with environmental justice. Like, I mean, food access is, is central to it, and having access to green space and access to fresh air, it's like... No, yeah, Catherine brings up a good point that the trend between, we've heard the case of the substation in um, Chelsea and East Boston, and then the Weymouth um, uh, gas compression station, yeah. and the trend between both of them is they both will inevitably have negative effects on the minority communities there who lack the literacy to understand what the effects of these different installations could be. Well, they understand. I mean, they know. These communities know very well that this is harmful infrastructure, and they're doing everything they can to stop it. It's more that they're just not being heard. Right, the voices aren't being heard, and they haven't been heard for such a long time, which is why the environmental justice movement is so important. So, Julia, how do we amplify voices that are advocating for the environmental justice movement? Yeah, I think that's kind of the critical question, and I'm still figuring it out. Um, I think it's really important to be educated, especially on things that are happening in or around your community, because climate change, environmental justice, racism, these are all massive, massive topics that seem pretty distant and kind of intangible when you don't put names and faces to them. So I think it's really important to know, like, Roxbury is being affected by this or Weymouth is being affected by this and I could get in my car and be in Weymouth in 20 minutes. So yeah, just being aware and being educated and also um, listening and not always, like, I don't know, I think I think oftentimes we want to think we know everything that's going yeah. on, but the people living in these communities are the ones who are seeing the direct effects of them. They're seeing these facilities. I mean, the production of these facilities near their communities in itself is causing environmental, you know, implications in their mm -hmm. communities. The dump trucks, the building that has to go on there. Mm -hmm. So, to your point, like recognizing we don't know everything that's going on in mm -hmm. these communities. Yeah. So how do we do we elevate those voices? Or is it just creating a space for them? Yeah, I mean, I think it's all about having a seat at the table, too, because it's not like these voices aren't out there. Um, they're out there. Again, like we've been saying, they're not being listened to. They're not being recognized. And I think if you do have a seat at the table or you can get a seat at the table, use it wisely and advocate for people who are being marginalized or whose voices are being suppressed. And back up socially equal policies and vote for candidates who fight harmful environmental policies. Yeah, definitely. And just like honestly, just like applying an intersectional and like an equity lens to everything that you do. And I think that looks different for everyone. Like whether you are a journalism student, like maybe you focus on stories about inequity or whether you are a business major, maybe you think about socially responsible business practices or whatever your passion is, like you can apply social justice and environmental justice to that and have your own meaningful way of being involved. And I think that's a really good way to wrap up. I think that's an incredible message you have to send that in, a, in any interest there is a way to include other people's interest in that. So yeah. thank you for that. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you again to Julia.